All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Vicky Girls. I almost said welcome to podcast. Uh, hello. Here we are. This is Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer. And Sandy Cohen is my real dad. So I didn't think of anything to put here, but the one I really want to say, you'll be so angry. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're going to say. Before Mary says anything, before Mary says anything, I'm going to keep talking over her having a meltdown in the background. We will put an explicit warning on this one, not just, just so Mary can say what she wants to say, but also because we're going to discuss some potentially triggering topics, including um, sexual assaults and abuse and alcoholism. Um, so take a break from this one if you need to. Uh, totally understand. There's a lot of heavy stuff in the OC, despite the fact that like it's a pretty light show. It's 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 it's, har- it's hard. It's hard. We'll get into it. Um, but okay, we've given the warning. We're gonna cuss. Go ahead, say your <laughs> awful thing, Mary. <laughs> I'm Mary. I'm an online marketer, and Sandy Cohen is dad and daddy. <laughs> it's not well, as bad. I'm not wrong. It's okay. So when when I was first telling when we were we were talking about the OC, and I said something about how Sandy Cohen is my real dad, and Mary is like when I was when I was younger, I was like Sandy Cohen's a good dad, and now I'm like Sandy Cohen probably has a big dick. <laughs> And then every time I saw Sandy after that, all I could think of was, I don't want to think about his dick. Well, I'm not wrong. Anyway. I need to go find some Sandy Cohen fan fiction. I haven't read any OC fan fiction. I haven't either. Um, I'll actually talk about that a little bit. I'm curious what the About shipping. Well, it's Ryan and Seth. I don't even know why I asked. I don't Uh, know why I asked. But I'll talk about that actually a little bit. There is a section of this. Um, Before we get into anything... Alenka, I'm so sorry that you had to listen to all of that before we thank you. But thank you, Alenka, for becoming a patron. A patron. Because of you, I can say daddy on a podcast. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> That's what I have to say about that. Uh, Alenka is a friend of ours, and uh, I'm very grateful. I am. Mary's not. I'm extremely grateful. I'm very grateful to her for joining the legion of cool people that is our patrons. Uh, Alenka also has an amazing cat named Nova. It's true. She's beautiful. She's powerful. She's strong. She's a genius. She can play every character on the OC. She can play. She she is every she character is. on the OC. She's just that good of an actor. She's 100% that good of an actor. <laughs> you can say that, bitch. I wasn't going to say that, bitch, because oh. I was just going to say she's really good at acting. Right. Gosh. Gosh, I'm sorry. Um. So, yeah. Thank you to Alenka. the cat podcast. Yeah. Thank you to Alenka for supporting us on Patreon. You can do the same by going to patreon.com slash girls and we'll say something weird about you, too. Especially if you tell us about your cats. Um, this is not the first cat that we have honored on this podcast. <laughs> this is the cat podcast. A podcast, <laughs> if you will. Well, we first and foremost honor your cats. Yes. Honor your cats. It's very important. Uh, so today we're talking about seasons one and two of the OC. Uh, the OC. California. Yep. California. California. We're not doing Here We Come. It's too much. Here We Come. Here we come. Uh, <laughs> um, so the OC is a, is a, it started in 2004. It's a show. It's a show um, showrunner Josh, Josh Schwartz um, overseeing the show about uh, a, 
I mean, the central story is about Ryan Atwood, who's a kid from the wrong side of the tracks, Chino, California. Who, I want the rem- that remix of California. <laughs> who ends up, um, his brother kind of talks him into stealing a car and he gets picked up for it. And, and uh, Sandy Cohen, his public defender, ends up um, sort of adopting him. It's never like formal, but they become his like, his secondary family and he grows up in Newport. I'm surprised they don't adopt him. Yeah, it's kind of, well, they w- that would take custody away from Dawn. Oh. Um, so I think it's more of an informal thing. But um, they become his secondary family and he lives in Newport for his years in high school, which is this uber wealthy, horribly corrupt place. Uh, he gets his new, like, pseudo brother, Seth Cohen, who's a jerk, um, but like, good jerk. In, in a lot of ways. We'll get into Seth. Um, and he starts dating Marissa, who is like this kind of a disaster rich girl. Uh, love her too. Love everyone mm-hmm. on the show, to be honest. Um, if I don't love him, I love to hate him. It's true. Um, and so the OC was a really groundbreaking show for a lot of reasons. Um, it featured a uh, same gender relationship um, between two characters that we'll get into later. Actually, multiple yeah. of them. Um, one primarily... Uh, it featured it had it shaped indie music mm-hmm. um, which is the first thing that we're going to talk about and it was one of the few teenage shows of its kind to make the adult problems um, as important to the story as the kids problems the uh, the adults are not absent and in fact their their problems affect the kids too yeah also the reason the golden girls are so big yeah it i'm <laughs> hold steady on that yeah um so also the reason that we have um Laguna Beach, The Hills, yep. and Real Housewives. Housewives. I mean, Real Housewives also comes from Desperate Housewives, yeah. but like all of those shows are kind started, of happening. So the first Desperate Housewife was Desperate or the first Real Housewives was The Real Housewives of OC. Yeah. And they even make mention to this yes. in the show and it's wonderful. Yeah. Um Josh Schwartz has, has said repeatedly of the show that it's kind of a post everything show. It's a bit postmodern, it's very ironic, there's a lot of self-aware humor in it. And so there's a lot of references to its own reputation within the show. But like I said, one of the biggest things that the show is known for is its music. And the reason for that is that it really kickstarted the popularity of indie rock, especially Death Cab for Cutie. Now, Mary and I are from the Pacific Northwest, um, so Death Cab for Cutie are from here. So uh, the OC did not have as warm of a reception up here for popularizing Death Cab as it probably did other places, uh, which is actually remarked on in the show. It's very funny. Uh, I think it's in season three, so getting a little little ahead of ourselves. But um, in season three, they're playing Death Cab on the Valley, which is the in-universe spoof of the OC. I love this show. And Caitlin... They're playing Death Cab and Caitlin goes, ugh, they're playing Death Cab on the Valley? Never listening to them again. Um, but yeah, Death Cab, uh, like I said, is is from our area and is very big here, but they like really rocketed to fame after um, their music. So the thing is, Adam Brody is a big fan of, uh, who plays Seth Cohen. Adam Brody is a big fan of Death Cab. And so they kind of brought that into the character. So he was always talking about, about Death Cab and then they used some Death Cab music. And then they actually had Death Cab on the show in season two. It was great. Uh, and they, they played one of my favorite songs, which is Title and Registration. It was good. I love how it just like season two turned into like what band's playing this I love this it. Week. It's so good. That's one of the things I really love about the show is because it like, I watched it a little bit later. It is, it is legitimately funny to watch this as an adult because like, I look back on it and I see so many of my favorite musical touchstones. So like Death Cab is there. 
Uh, Roylo Kylie's in there. Bright Eyes is in there. Um, Imogen Heap. Uh, all of these bands. And like, not to be a Seth Cohen about it, but like, I definitely was listening to these bands before they were on the OC. <laughs> um, but. Uh, it's but like we're in an area where indie was really popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, like, Image and Heap in particular, because of season two, became this, like, phenomenon because of the uh, the Dear Sister sketch on yeah. SNL, which I had never seen. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> um, and I, now Ariana Grande loves Image and Heap. Yep, yep, so yep, you yep. Can thank the OC for her wonderful cover. Yep, you're welcome. I say as if I made <laughs> So music is very important to the show, to the characters, but then also um, Josh Schwartz, the creator of the OC, wanted the music to essentially be its own character. Um, and I'll get a little in. I'll get a little bit into how that works. Um, since we're just talking about seasons one and two, we'll be focusing there. Um, but we're going to revisit some of this for season three and four because the way that the music there becomes some um, musical leitmotif, leitmotifs. I don't know if you say the S and leitmotif. Whatever it doesn't matter. Don't call me out. Um, there become some like musical themes that continue on through the season, especially the the use of Hallelujah and Image and Heap. Anyway, uh, this is a quote from Wikipedia. So it's, you know, Sean Rogers, uh, Sub Pop's creative director of film and TV licensing, said that the that the OC's choice of music was to, quote, support bands in the style of music that they've been following, adding that artists were willing because, quote, it pays well in comparison to what most indie bands make touring. However, Jimmy Tamborello producer for the postal service commented that it was just because quote we're cheaper which is fair um but the the thing that this really did is it is it allowed bands like death cap who's already like a successful indie band it's not like they were like nobody's ever heard of them i mean again i'm a little bit biased because i come from this area but uh even they were so, still doing well they were signed yeah i mean they played soul meets body and soul meets body was one of their bigger songs yeah um and like I, you know, I will follow you into the dark and that kind of thing. Um, but the, it really helped launch the careers of bands like Rooney, whose sales increased by two hundred percent after wow. appearing on the show. Now that, that song is so good, it is really good. I still really like Rooney. I just put it on my what I'm listening to. Right yeah. Now. Um, the thing is that these didn't have like lasting impacts on their career, so they would usually see an initial spike and then like it would drop off again. Um. The music supervisor for the show, Alexander Patsavis, has worked on a number of projects known for their soundtracks, um, such as the Twilight movies, which, mm. you know, say what you will about Ch Twilight. Soundtrack's good. Mm -hmm. um, the OC, obviously, and Grey's Anatomy, which also has a has a really popular soundtrack, oh, also know known for lots of indie music. They actually, again, make a reference to Grey's Anatomy in um, in the OC. Also in the Pacific Northwest. Also in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, as well as Gossip Girl and Supernatural. Yeah. So, like, she's known for doing, like, curating these really great soundtracks. Um, Schwartz rehired her for Gossip Girl and Chuck because of their success with the OC. So it, it wasn't she just... named Chuck after him? <clears throat> in, the go in Gossip Girl, there's a Chuck. Oh, I don't know, but he just likes the name Chuck. Hmm. Uh, uh, Pat Savas, as the music supervisor, frequently approached lesser-known bands for cover songs that would help them find success. So, like, the version of um, Lover I Don't Have to Love Again, this is season three. Is a cover band, is a cover song. Uh, Image and Heap covers Hallelujah. So good. Oh, God, it's good. Um, Did they cover it for the OC? The the Image and Heap one, yes. Wow. And that's because it's because of the way that Hallelujah works as a thematic tie through the series. But wow. I can't talk about it until next season, yeah, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. 
Um, but yeah, so there are a lot of cover songs in the OC, some of them more popular than others. I actually just heard a, they did a, a cover of Float On in like season four or something. I really hate the song Float On. I'm sorry. There goes all my indie cred. Uh, but I, re- I don't really care for Modest Mouse. Um, Re-listening to them on the OC, I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll give them another try. Yeah. I like Ocean Breathe Salty a lot, but they just never really did it for me. I think there's a lot connected to modest it's mouth. true it's there's very a, hard to explain yeah there's a there's a context there that i can't quite remove modest mouse yeah. from um but they did a cut co- there's a cover of float on that i loved and i googled it and everybody's like this is the worst cover i've ever heard who does it uh gold something i don't know i wasn't familiar with huh. the band um but there's a weird cover of lover i don't have to love and yeah hell yeah uh Uh, So I have a quote I want to read, which is from an essay called Storytelling in Song, Television, Music, Narrative, and Illusion in the OC, which is by Faye Woods, who writes, presented as as authentic outsiders, Seth and Ryan view this society through a self-aware, slightly mocking distance. However, the emotive portions of the OC's soundscape, plaintive indie rock, new folk, or singer-songwriter, allow music to provide the emotional connectivity that its playfully ironic pose could potentially deny. As a result, the program allows a dual level of engagement for its audience who could revel in the knowing soap opera plotting and the boys' witty banter, yet at the same time be drawn to the emotional realism of its musical moments. Which is really, really true. Um, There's a lot of ironic posturing in the show, and the show's perfectly aware of that, right? Like, Seth as a character is like the embodiment of ironic distance. Um, But music is where the show is very genuine, also true of Seth as a character, right? Um, there's, so there's like all of this like self commentary about how melodramatic everything is and, and, and like how silly it is. And then you'll hear hallelujah, which is like a very emotional song, which this essay also makes a point of like, by the time that we get to the image and heap cover of it, the song, had kind of lost some of its emotional resonance just because of how frequently it was being used. I mean, it was in Shrek still my, <sighs> still my favorite cover of hallelujah. Don't at me. <laughs> Love. I think most people would agree with you, though. N- no. Really? No, because the Jeff Buckley version is, like, the version. Mm-hmm. I'm personally all about that Rufus Wainwright. Yeah, Rufus Wainwright is way better. I love Rufus Wainwright a lot. Um, but Jeff Buckley is is generally considered to be, oh. like, the best of the covers, which is, like, it's a good cover. But I'm all about that Rufus Wainwright version. Anyway, my feelings aside um we're going to talk about this more in the next episode but the use of hallelujah in particular is central not only to like the emotional resonance of these scenes but also just the themes of the show in general and especially ryan's role in this community and it's very very direct about it like it's not shy about how it's used and music is one of the few things that the show is not post so like i mentioned earlier um schwartz has identified the show as being kind of post everything it's like post you know it's post irony. It's post modern. It's post all of us, but music it is not. It is it. Music is where it comes through at its most genuine. It's where the emotions and themes are clear. It's where characters are being most honest, um, and it it's where it kind of tells you what it's feeling with yeah. the most honesty. You can uh, tell there's just like a real love of this music. Absolutely, it's it's not coming from a place of trying to be cool, um, which is one of the few places where it is not trying to be cool. Impressive, yeah. Uh, it kind of it it its use of indie music is pretty genuine. Like the music all makes sense where it is, um, which is cool. That's one of the reasons that the the impressions of the music last so long, even when you can't remember what's happened in the show. You just remember that feeling of seeing Death Cab or 
um, the way that they used Hallelujah or the way that they, I mean, you know, j- joke as it's become, the way that they use uh, Hide and Seek by Imogen Heap is like really impactful, it right? Uh, I didn't realize I had not seen the Dear Sister sketch until like pretty recently. Oh, not, really? not, I mean, when I say recently, I mean way after I watched the OC. It was actually like years ago, but did I did Josh, thank you. Josh it, yeah. made me watch it because I put on the song and he's like, oh my God, it's that song from SNL. And I'm like, no, it's that song from the OC. What are you talking about? And then uh, and then he's like, oh, you have to watch this. And I'm like, oh, my God, they're parodying the OC. I think it was with you when you watched it. Yeah, I think it was when we still lived together. Yeah. Yeah, because I had never seen that. Um, but like that that moment in the show is iconic enough that it inspired like a parody that probably has eclipsed the um, the, the the show itself. And then, like you know, it went on. I think Jason Derulo used it in a song that what you say, I think is the name of the song yeah um but yeah like that 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 song itself became iconic and when it's used in the show i think it's used extremely effectively it's good it's very good uh so i have another quote i want to read from that same essay storytelling and song where woods writes the song reappears at the close of the season one finale that ties that bind which is about um this is about hallelujah oh here's here's where i was talking about where we get a little more into the themes uh Hallelujah reappears at the close of the season one finale that ties that bind when Ryan has decided to leave Newport to return to his home with pregnant ex-girlfriend Teresa, Navi Rawat, leaving a devastated Cohen family in his wake. The return of the track brings the connotations of its earlier involvement in a melancholically romantic moment of Ryan and Marissa's relationship and also provides a bookend to the season. It plays over and pulls together a montage of moments illustrating the effect of Ryan's decision on his friends and family. Shots of Ryan and Teresa anxious and unsure in her car, Marissa isolated and drinking alone on the balcony of her stepfather's mansion home. Kirsten Cohen, Ryan's adopted mother, crying whilst clearing his room, and Seth running away from home, sailing into the sunset in his boat. Buckley's rising refrain of I lived alone until I met you, which earlier related merely to Ryan and Marissa, expands here to refer to all the central characters and their relationship with Ryan. The sequence draws on the ability of the pop song montage to cohere the multiple moments of a televisual ensemble drama to construct narrative closure, creating a finality to a segment, a single episode and season of an ongoing narrative whole. Sequences such as this foreground the segmentation and flow of the television aesthetic as narrative fragments are woven together through the unifying flow of the track into an expressive whole. Wow, that's a good show. Right? Like that use of Hallelujah, which now has become kind of like an overwrought emotional song, right? Like it's kind of, I still love this song dearly, but like it it has a mad world effect, right? Like we can no longer take the song mad world seriously, um, particularly the Gary Jules version. Um, it kind of it's it's kind of had that done to it done to it at this point, but like the way that it's used in the show with that I used to live alone until I met you line, um, echoing the way that uh, that Ryan, who is this very genuine person, comes into this community that is full of posturing and is just himself, and the way that that changes everybody he encounters, and it's really like it's really sweet the way that that is done, the way that it acknowledges that Ryan's presence in in you know, the community of Newport has not been like just a fish out of water story or it wasn't just a like, um, like he just comes in and is like a troublemaker or he just comes in and is changed by his experience. Everybody else is changed by his experience too. Yeah. Um, so Ryan is like very much this catalyst for change. And as these themes continue to be echoed in the later uses of Hall- Hallelujah and also Imogen Heap, 
uh, we kind of see this multitude of meanings. Both Imogen Heap and Hallelujah become leitmotifs for the show. And so every time you, they show up, you know something important is happening. Uh, we haven't gotten to Imogen Heap yet when at the end of season one. I don't think. They might use Good Night and Go in the first season. But I can't remember. I don't know. I've heard that song so many times I can't. Yeah, I can't like pinpoint it. Yeah, <laughs> um, but the the uh, hide and seek, which is the mm, what you say song, obviously mm-hmm. plays. A, it's so good though. It's so good though. Um, basically, the point of this whole section is that the OC's use of music is very purposeful, and it's not just a me- method of showing off their hot new music taste. You know, like oh, have you heard of this band Death Cab or whatever? Like it's it's very purposeful. Um, so let's talk about its commentary. Surprisingly, uh, yeah. <laughs> surprisingly salient commentary that frequently falls on its face. I I will never like. I don't know that I'll ever love an opening episode to a show as much as I love. <laughs> That's true. Episode one of the OC, which gave us not only the iconic "Welcome to the OC, bitch," but also <laughs> gave us the iconic. You know what I like about rich kids? Bam nothing it's so good best line in a movie in a show ever anything ever anything it's perfect i love it so much i can't true and raw and emotional oh man it's so good the the first episode of season one and the first episode of season two are both fabulous it's it's like some of the best pilot yeah episode ever yeah they're both so good um so you have like this obvious commentary, right, about class in the show. Not only is is Ryan from Chino, which is a you know less affluent neighborhood, also not as, to my understanding, certainly not as bad as they make it look in the OC. I remember going to visit my cousins once and like passing Chino. I mean, like we should go to Chino, and it was like totally fine. <laughs> they make it look like it's, uh... but I mean, if you live in Newport, yeah, it probably is, yeah. Um. So, you, you know, you have this kid from from Chino who's like this uh, rough and tumble kind of getting into trouble kid who's rescued by a public defender who makes a point of, you know, saying like he would rather defend a drug dealer than a white collar criminal. And um, you're like, yes. I'm like, yeah, Sandy, get it. Fight uh, the power. Yeah. Yep. So... You have like all of this being set up right, and the show is you know largely a sympathetic show about rich people, uh, and you can see throughout the events that happen how money corrupts everybody, including Sandy, who is like our bastion of moral certainty in the show. Money also impacts him, and this is this shows up more in season three, so we'll get into more of it there. But once he leaves his public defender job, things start to go south, and he leaves his public defender job pretty quickly. Uh, why? Because he's going to defend a white collar criminal. And look what happens after he starts defending this white collar criminal. Things get worse. Um, So we have this like clear idea about money as a corrupting force and the city of Newport just as a corrupting force. Um, But one of the things that's most interesting to me is the way that both this like macrocosm, right, of of like money and like wealth corrupt, but then also specifically the city of Newport. And then on an even tinier level, the individual ways that individuals are shaped by the community. And one of the best examples of this is Seth. Um, oh, Seth. So Seth is the way that Seth is in part because to, to be like a hundred percent transparent, Josh Schwartz wrote Seth after himself and his relationship with his father. And like what, like I'm not saying like Seth is Josh Schwartz, but like he played a major 
role in like he's very transparent about the fact that inspired by yeah that that he is in part seth um now that's really great because the show is not a really sympathetic portrayal of seth and so seth when i watched this show as as a teenager and then again probably as a very young adult i was like i love seth i still love i still love seth Seth. i still love seth he's a great character but like in high school seth was like dream boy right like i was like oh my god i love seth i want to marry seth cohen it's true i was like seth is a huge part of the reason why when i was younger i was like i'm not a nerd because i'm not cool enough yeah you're not cool enough to be like seth cohen seth cohen wow (laughs) embarrassing how times change um as an adult i look at seth cohen and i see all of his flaws hot garbage hot garbage um and the way that so hot yeah i mean he was like 26 at the time (laughs) so it's like okay to be like you're hot and so somebody asked about that like why did you cast such old people as old people why did you cast (laughs) why did you cast adults as teenagers and josh words was like do you want to watch teens have sex for the first time i know right (laughs) like of course they cast adults (laughs) well i i thought about that as watching the show there's so many scenes of just like mostly naked women yeah. like girls and like who are supposed to be teenagers and you're clearly supposed to be looking at this as like, yeah. like a sexual thing i was like whoa this is kind of weird as yeah an adult watching this yeah uh, marissa is a teenager yeah marissa was actually uh misha barton was actually 18 when the show started she filming. was 17 she was 17 she was 17 oh uh, she was i she must have turned during the mm. filming or something because i was just reading an article about it and mm. she was 17 and then um uh, ben McKenzie, who plays Ryan, is like twenty-seven, how or twenty-eight, or something like that. Yeah, it's that's why they didn't have sex for so long. <laughs> their ages are all over the place. Uh, but Seth, to return to Seth, Seth, um, as a character, as a teenager, again, we both thought he was super cool and hot, and our boyfriend. Um, but looking at him as an adult, you can not only see his flaws, which are very apparent in the show. The show does not try to excuse Seth's behavior, almost never. Um. But as an adult, you can kind of see the way that his upbringing in Newport and specifically his two parents, Kirsten and Sandy, have shaped him because he has all of the privilege of his mother who grew up extremely wealthy uh, in Newport, all of that. And the cynicism of his father who looks down at the people of Newport for their wealth and social status, which is totally fair. Team Sandy in this one. But by not interrogating his own status the way that his mother does not, Seth and Sandy both become complicit in it they're super smug seth in particular does very little to improve anybody's life but his own like right after right after the you know i like about rich people and nothing and seth is like he's like i'm not rich right i'm like upper middle class yep 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 literally no yes that's how you know when somebody's super rich is when they say that i'm not rich i'm like upper middle class we're comfortable we're comfortable that was like legit one of my favorite jokes in crazy rich asians is no we're on a like private jet no we're not rich we're comfortable we do okay and i'm like okay well then you're filthy rich um so Yes, like Sandy, you know, does all like he's a public defender and this kind of stuff. And then later on, he uses his position to try to like build low income housing and that kind of stuff. Seth doesn't do any of that. He's not interested in improving anybody's life but his own. And the show is very intent on making that clear to the audience. Like the show doesn't let it go, which is what you would fully expect is that they're going to be like, well, Seth is a cool nerd and he's inspired by the creator of the show. Therefore, he's only going to be written as a cool nerd. But that's not the case. I think the ability for 
him to be self-aware of his own flaws is what makes Seth able to be able to do that. Because it could be easy. It, that Seth could easily be like awful and like you could totally not like Seth. And yeah. Be like, Why do I have to listen to this person talk? But but the, 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 but the ability to make Seth be like this aspirational character when you're younger, but then become an adult and see like, oh, all the ways he's flawed is just like really good storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so you know that part in the social network where Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> girlfriend says, you know, you're going to go through life thinking girls don't like you because you're a nerd, but it's actually because you're an asshole. That's literally Seth. It's true. Like that is Seth Cohen. It's true. Um, he's a huge asshole. He's self-aware about how much of an asshole he is. But like the fact that he can't understand that the reason people don't like him is not because he likes comics because there's a comic book club at school. Like he started it, but there are other comics fans at the school and they're still not his friends and it's because he fucking sucks it's true he's like he's he's smug he's really really smug he's super self-interested and even ryan remarks on that again i'm jumping forward to season four but there's a scene where a character says you know they're gonna take seth's place for because he's not there at the moment and they say so how do you usually talk this stuff out what do you do like what's the conversation like and ryan's like well usually uh, Seth talks about himself and then I solve my own problems. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> and like, that's exactly how Seth is. And like, it, like frankly, rewatching the show, I'm amazed at how much the show understands that he sucks. Like, and that, and not only that, but that he's a perfect combination of his two parents. Like yeah. he makes, he makes so much sense as a character. It's just talent. Like, yeah. he's just talented that they were able to do this. And, like, Adam Brody plays him so likably that it's not surprising yeah. that, like, when I was younger, it, like, fooled me, essentially, yeah. that, like, no, he's a great person. No, he's not. He sucks he's ass. Not. Yeah. Uh, and I think the biggest complaint I have about Seth is the lack of growth between seasons two and three because seasons two, in season two, he makes a whole bunch of mistakes. And then season three, he continues to make the same mistakes, but worse. Um, and there's no real growth. But the thing is that the show doesn't let him off the hook just because he's funny. Yeah. Um, which is where it could have been a major failing. Um, but Seth, like everybody else, is is a product of the environment that he is he is raised in. And I think that's one of the show's one, one of the show's major strengths. Um, but, you know, we have this right. Like S- Seth grew up in this horrible environment, not horrible in the sense of like like he was poor and, and abused or anything like that, but like toxic. He grew up in a toxic environment in terms of like being raised in this extremely wealthy, privileged insular city. And, and like, there's clearly a commentary being made about that, but is it any good at depicting, depicting class struggle? Sometimes when it's direct, Sandy being a public defender is great. And the way that he talks about representing a kid who broke the law to survive over people like Jimmy fucking Cooper is important for mass audiences to see, right? Like that stuff is good. That said, the show drifts rather quickly away from that uh, as Sandy does, in fact, go on to help Jimmy fucking Cooper and then joins his high class law firm. And from there, it doesn't really get better in terms of depicting class struggle. No. So Ryan had a lot of opportunity. It did. It did. But the thing is that the show seems more mostly uninterested in class as a social issue and more interested in it as an individual issue. Um, yep you're totally right so Ryan makes for a great fish out of water story right like he comes into this rich town whatever the the show ultimately doesn't do much to show that poverty is systemic and not just a single affliction so you know Ryan grew up poor but the moment that he's extended this opportunity then you know his entire life changes he doesn't really have the only thing that he unlearns is his tendency toward violence which is blamed on being raised in a poor community and not like the reasons that somebody may engage in violence. Um, 
it's it is brought up once which i think we'll we'll talk about later um the fact that like he doesn't call the cops because he knows how the cops will respond to somebody like him um but i have a quote i want to read from who is ryan atwood social mobility in the class chameleon in the oc which is by elizabeth bullen who writes one of the predominant filmic strategies in the OC is parallelism, and it is used to draw viewers' attention to the double standards in the perception of the difference between class cultures. Thus, Ryan's delinquent act of car theft parallels Jimmy Cooper's white-collar crime and daughter Marissa's petty theft. The dysfunction of the underclass Atwood family parallels that of the Cooper family, and Ryan's mother's alcoholism mirrors Kirsten Cohen's battle with alcohol. If Ryan has been abandoned by his parents, so too has poor little rich boy Oliver Trask. Oliver, who appears in episodes 114 to 118, lives in the penthouse alone lives alone in the penthouse of the four seasons while his parents travel. In addition to providing a dramatic complication in the romance between Ryan and Marissa, three these episodes serve to highlight the basis. Sorry highlight the bias of the hegemonic group against the poor. It is, in fact, Oliver, not Ryan, who is dangerous, dishonest, manipulative, and given to illegal activities. His wealth and privilege mask the truth and permit him more than a second chance while Ryan is suspended from school for trying to expose him. I know you hate Oliver, but like rewatching this this storyline, I thought what they did with Ryan and Oliver was yeah. really good. Yeah. And like the trying to show like he's crazy and no one believing him and like that showing how easy it is for Oliver to manipulate everybody. Yeah, definitely. Especially because nobody wants to believe Ryan because he's not from their community and he's poor. And so people are like, well, of course, this kid's trying to start trouble. Yeah. And of course, we believe um, uh, rich kid Oliver. Yeah. Oliver over, over Ryan. And all of these things are like set up really neatly for us, right? To make these, to make these connections and like really display, you know, that there's parallels between, not even parallels, like the the moral um, bankruptcy of, no pun intended, of somebody like Jimmy Cooper and <laughs> and, um, and Julie Cooper is is set up pretty neatly to parallel the. Um, experiences of the you know of ryan's family or whatever like ryan ultimately ryan and his family even um don who is largely absent for the fir- from the first two seasons um it, most of the seasons but she does show up more in, in season three um and even trey to an extent like they're like there's a there's a parallelism there that is like it's not moral to be rich and it's not immoral to be poor. Like that's set up for us. The problem is it's never really slam dunked. (laughs) Like they never really get there. The OC either has a lot of faith in its audience to figure it out themselves, or it just isn't interested in pointing out the hypocrisy. I don't think it's interested. Yeah. It totally has the ability. Like they clearly have the ability to tell that story. It's just, was early 2000s and were they not interested? You know, what's fascinating to me is I wish the show had gone on in another year. Because it would have been 2008. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it ended in 2007, right before the financial crisis. Uh, that would have been so interesting. Right? Because the Coens made their money in development. Yeah. Yeah. And it ended right before that, which honestly is appropriate. But like, still, I would have loved to see how that would have changed the way that the show went on. It's so interesting to think about. It would have been a really good opportunity to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Huh. Um. So this this idea of like not being not being interested in pointing out the ho- the hypocrisy becomes really problematic for um progressive readings of the show when you see how it treats poor not even poor poorer people <laughs> especially as we get into season three which we'll discuss in our next episode but I mean look at how Trey is constructed just in comparison so like yes there could be a point there about how when you give poor people an opportunity and care um 
they they benefit from that not just like in the like in a social sense but like if you like i was actually just listening to wonderful and they were talking about the perry um preschool experiment which is where they put a a um, preschool in a low-income area and then followed kids who were able to attend this this preschool like at-risk kids who were able to attend this school in comparison with kids who weren't and it was like a 46 percent like 46 percent um you were 46 percent more likely to end up in jail if you didn't attend preschool in this community so it's like i mean it's a small community but still um so like when you when you give at-risk kids poor kids etc those opportunities then you you know you're setting them up for a different life so like it could like on one hand it feels like the show is trying to make that argument with trey and ryan right like trey's or ryan is given this opportunity and so his life takes a different path the problem is that both paints poor people as like excessively susceptible to evil because like trey isn't just acting like in survival mode or he like because he he sexually assaults marissa like to be fair the sexual assault on marissa felt really felt really out of left field it really there did. was nothing that made me think that trey would do that yeah i get it i get what they were going for yeah. because this is shown again and again we'll get to this when we talk more about marissa but um marissa is in fact a really good parallel to ryan in terms of their desire to save people and um so marissa's kindness toward trey like it Get, could easily be seen as something else. Yeah. And then he was also high at the time and was just stupid, but whatever. Um, so I don't know. It did, it feels out of left field for him to take that. Like I could see maybe like taking her along for some like bad deal or something. Yeah. That would have made a lot more sense, but there was nothing that made me think Trey yeah. would do that. And it kind of sucked. It was weird. Um, so not only does it suggest that, you know, poor people are especially susceptible to evil, but it also suggests that wealth makes you more moral, even though, oh, yeah. like, thematically, we know that's not true, right? Because nobody in, in Newport is really moral. Um, but when you when you position those characters that way, Ryan's access to wealth makes him moral. Mm-hmm. Is it, it's because he no longer has to struggle to survive when we really look at it, right? Yeah. But it's also because, like, Ryan is just positioned as good and Trey is positioned as bad because even when Trey has access to those same things, because the Coens, like, extend their offer to him as well. Well, and Sandy even says, like, trying to convince Ryan, like, we should let him stay with us because if, like, study... I can't remember exactly what he said, but, like, studies show that if you help somebody who's coming out of jail, they're more likely to succeed. Right. And that feeds into that yeah and then trey just throws it all away right why i don't know there's no reason given for it it, it trey's storyline f- kind of rubs me the wrong way because it, it you know it, what it makes me think of is people who are like people who say who are awful and say things like well some people just like to be in jail yeah exactly that's how it feels to me mm-hmm. like um well trey had all this hard time and it's just easier for him to go back to jail yeah it's like, that's like not true for most people. Don't get me wrong. I literally know somebody who went back to jail because that's where they wanted to be. But like the amount of people who do that. Right. Minuscule. Yeah. Especially. Come on. Especially when you consider like how many people in jail are jailed for petty crimes that yeah. shouldn't be illegal. And the amount of like slave labor that's basically being yeah. done with like different programs. Like. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Of course, like, this isn't what the OC is trying to say, right? Like, it's not trying to say that 
rich people are morally good and poor people are morally bad. But when the show treats poor people as either good but poor Ryans or bad and poor everybody else, it does send an unfortunate message, right? Well, not uh, Teresa. Not Teresa. But you know what? Teresa manages to escape poverty. How? By her own hard work, because that's all it takes. Yeah. Uh, That's true. Yeah. And I mean, it's not true. Right. But that's the way the show presents it. And of course, you can contrast Julie and Ryan, right? Who both come from poor backgrounds and who have radically different moral compasses. Unfortunately, by limiting our access to poor people, we don't get the sense that Julie is the weird one. We get the sense that Ryan is an exception. Ryan is exceptional. Ryan is the poor person who manages to succeed. Uh, Because most poor people we meet are money-hungry criminals. They're dirty. And they are especially people of color. I mean, yeah. we The rich people of color that we have. There's two. The principal. Yeah. Oh, there's like three then. I forgot about the principal. Who else? I think they come in in season three. Okay. I think they probably were like, hey, why is this show so white? Well, let's have two rich people of color. Um, so I have another quote I want to read from that same essay who is Ryan Atwood uh, by Elizabeth Bolin who writes although his facial expressions may at times be read as brooding they signify guardedness rather than repressed anger Ryan is clean cut in appearance and although often taciturn his diction and accent is middle class he does not use coarse language or street talk overall his appearance and demeanor is classless allowing him to be whoever Newport and the viewer wants him to be in contrast Ryan's older brother Trey his mother's boyfriend AJ and his former girlfriend's fiance Eddie embody particular types of masculinity that are coded working or underclass this is conveyed in their dress speech and deportment and perhaps most strikingly the tattoos they both wear as signifiers of a virile physically domineering masculinity such masculinity is symbolically associated with particular forms of male behavior which also function as a cultural as cultural capital in certain class structures so to be clear they do recast trey in the second season he's not played by the same person um the I thought so i didn't look at yeah. i was like that's not the same the author so much younger <laughs> the author writes uh trey returns in the second season endangering the welfare of the teenagers in the oc significantly the role was recast the replacement actor being less class coded in his physical appearance that said trey still reads as distinctly lower class to me in comparison to ryan like ryan yes he's wearing a wife beater and a leather cuff okay cool whatever uh i grew up in a farm town like this is what you wear yeah uh ryan's dress is fairly blue collar but his manner isn't like the way that he interacts with people he's very like as much as he is this very like punch first ask questions later especially in season one he's very introspective he's very like thoughtful he's he doesn't talk a lot he's not he's not he like doesn't crack jokes he doesn't crack jokes he's more of a sounding board for seth's jokes he's very um like he's he's he doesn't project that kind of masculinity that's like aggressive mm-hmm. despite the fact that he's known for for violence especially in season one he is not aggressive he's always responsive yeah um trey and, and then especially in season two right because in season two he's like i'm going to lose this this yeah. family that i have if i don't act a certain way so i'm gonna try to like really control my urge to fight um, so in season two, he's very passive and like will not fight until the very end of the season when when he finds out that um, Trey attacked Marissa. Uh, so in that in in season two, he's he's even more reserved. But in comparison, Trey has this very sleazy feel about him, which is just in the way that he conducts himself. You can tell he's manipulative. You can tell that he is lying a lot, all of that kind of thing. You can. There's also I I felt that there was like the hint of like he wanted to change mm-hmm. 
and but like he it was felt re- like he couldn't. I think there's that, and there's also like he falls really easily back. He's he falls to temptation in a way that so, Ryan doesn't yeah, so easily. Well, and I think that that's what Teresa is so good is there for. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she's literally there to to remind the viewer like, don't trust this guy. Yeah, he sucks. Yeah. How dare you how dare you say that you're questioning Marissa over your deadbeat brother? Right. Yeah. Uh, I have another quote I want to read from that same essay. Uh, As Ryan begins to spend more time with Marissa, Seth accepts an invitation to go to a party in Long Beach with Donnie. He subsequently invites Donnie to a Newport party where his new friend draws a gun on the crowd. (laughs) Episode 105. In both cases, Ryan is called upon to save the hapless Seth since he, unlike Ryan, who comes from a world like Donnie's, is is naive to the dangers of the underclass. The episode establishes Ryan's loyalty to his new friend and his commitment to his new class location. But in doing so reiterates the undesirability of the underclass. Uh, and this is precisely the issue for me. Anytime there's an intrusion of the lower class into the upper class world of Newport, it's bad with the exception of Ryan. If we're meant to believe it's because Ryan is offered care and compassion, that also should extend to Trey. But it also suggests that poor people are by nature morally bankrupt. And you could argue, you know, in the OC that everybody is morally bankrupt with a few exceptions. Um, Sandy, who also came from a less privileged background although we don't we do actually learn a little bit more about his upbringing later on but the fact that all the poor people we see except ryan are bad certainly doesn't paint a flattering picture of the lower class so the moral that the oc seems to be presenting us with is that you can just stop being poor if you find yourself a wealthy family who loves you unless you're julie cooper or if you've had to do anything bad to survive at which point you're already a doomed criminal uh you may still be deserving of fair counsel and sentencing as we will see in season four uh but you're still morally bad so yeah you have like i said all of this setting up right of these places where the the class discussions could go but none of them are ever completed because the show is far more interesting in showing us all of these evil poor people it's bad news yeah i think that i think a lot of the problem here is the individuality of of ryan's created as an exceptional yeah and Teresa, and like and i just it sucks because they could they probably could have done it really well if they yeah. put in the time. Yeah. But they weren't interested in, in in that. Yeah. So I wonder why. I think they got so wrapped up in the, the high class drama. I mean, it probably has a lot to do with like what do people rather watch? They're coming to, o- to watch the OC to watch a bunch yeah. of rich people and escape and be like, oh, rich people still suck. And I, I'm sure they had absolutely no ill intent on showing the poor people, but unfortunately, it's, it's an un- they use them as villains, which is will bring well, us they to use our rich people as villains too. I want right. to be clear. Well, this will bring us to our next topic: how white this fucking show is—the <gasps> whitest show I've ever seen in my life. <gasps> so this is another quote from Who Is Ryan Atwood: "Social Mobility and the Class Chameleon." Uh, from Bullen, who writes, in presenting violence as a masculine as well as a class trait, a distinction has to be made among the characters who perpetrate it. It is notable that Donnie and Eddie are Latino and their actions are driven by emotion. In Donnie's case, his violence is the result of class envy. Yet, while the reason for his violence is given, the series offers no scope for critically assessing the divisiveness of the class hierarchy or understanding the bitterness created by Donnie's consciousness of his low social status. Judged according to middle class values, which he has rejected, he must be excluded from civilized society. By contrast, although Melissa's former boyfriend, Luke, initiates violence, it in no way threatens his status in Newport Beach. Indeed, although initially positioned as an antagonist to the central characters, he ultimately becomes part of their circle. 
Likewise, while Ryan's physical violence is not actually endorsed, the instances are of it are differentiated for, from Donnie's and Eddie's violence by being presented as acts of selfless heroism and evidence of moral integrity and a male code of honor. Yeah, I think I think that the the comparison between Luke and like Donnie, like yeah. why didn't we get Donnie's explanation like valid anger yeah. at, at, at rich people over Luke's invalid anger? Like why at did nothing? At nothing. Just, why he's just why didn't we get that? Like Donnie Donnie could have been brought in, mm-hmm. um, but he wasn't for I'm sure many reasons. But when you look at it at, at class, like you're only you're only like supporting that idea that you're trying to challenge yeah that's the thing is i think that this show was very it was very much of its time and feeling i mean this is 2000 uh 2004 2005 um this is preceding obama's election at which point we all collectively patted ourselves on the back for solving racism um it's true and so like i'm not sure that this was exactly the 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 idea of like a post-racial america but like it's reflective of the unconscious or conscious biases that we have about poor people and especially poor people of color um and it really paints a super unflattering picture of what the show is trying to do and like the reality of newport as a city is that it is extremely white which Mm -hmm. schwartz has pointed out in interviews however we're not gonna like be like well okay it was just representing reality because the show refuses to engage with race whatsoever at, like not even a little until season three at which point they make a joke which we'll talk about next episode um uh and particularly they have no interest in, in interrogating the ways that race is intertwined with class and to be honest watching the oc try to engage with race would probably be extremely painful yeah and bad i mean they don't even try to engage with like being jewish right like that could have been easy that could have been easy yeah um, but to pretend that race isn't an issue at all is absurd because, you know, what does it mean to be marginalized but rich? That's something, too. Like, if there, you know, if there was a person of color who had a major role and wasn't just in the epi- in one single episode or whatever, um, you know, we could examine what it means to be different within the society. Like, what does that it mean to Luke. be? Yeah. Um, but we don't get that. If the discrimination Ryan faces is despite the fact that he's white, how would people from Newport treat a Chino transplant who isn't white? You know, would it be deeply uncomfortable? Love, yes. I would love <laughs> to see Julie Cooper deal with that. It would have been, it, you know what it would have been? It would have been, um, that scene in Cruel Intentions. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, I think the show is probably like thinks it's saving itself by not engaging with something it doesn't understand um and uncomfortable and probably straight up bad and offensive as it would have been to see the oc tackle race um it instead suggests that most poor people a disproportionate amount of whom are people of color are bad because the only time we see them is is as criminals so in not in refusing to engage with it whatsoever it instead tells us that people of color are criminals or that um newport has no trouble with race which i we know not to be true because we have the very very short-lived romance between dj and marissa Mm -hmm. um like we know poor dj yeah poor dj and then later on we have a character who is overtly racist in season four who's just treated like a buffoon like 
it's not it's not ever like seriously i think it's handled. unfortunate because i don't think that they had any intention on doing this it's just and i think on surface level i think that's easy to miss this i think i think if you're looking at this at, on surface level it's easy to be like well clearly like the poor people were not they're they're not the evil people here the rich people are like julie cooper and caleb and even jimmy and even jimmy uh but but like we said those people get redeeming story arc especially Jimmy. even caleb yeah like, even caleb gets uh, like a redeem like a somewhat redeeming arc and but we never but where's s- donnie's where's eddie's where's yeah even Teresa's? like yeah like we see she's there she is she really is not her own the only time she's her own character is her brief her brief uh, like friendship with marissa yeah and even then she's it's set up to to be able to defend Marissa to Ryan. Right. And so that's that's not a redeeming quality. Like Teresa Teresa is the closest that we get. And but, Teresa becomes and her own model of exceptionalism in season four. Yep. Um, yeah. It's it's unfortunate because I definitely I don't want anyone to think that that this is like intentional but by the by the show it's very reflective of liberal values mm-hmm. in the mid 2000s of of the idea of like well you know things aren't as bad as they used to be because you know the civil rights movement happened and therefore racism isn't real and i mean you can just straight up see like season season five season six of the oc being like we have a black president racism is over you know like you could totally see that happening in the show and the result is that it becomes this perfect encapsulation of what white liberalism was in it's the a, 2000s. They take the they take the characters and they really they really take these characters that could be stereotypical and they and they break them down. It's unfortunate that they didn't do that with other stuff. Yeah. I wonder if they're just better at doing it with characters and that's why it ends up being individual. I imagine that they they probably felt that they weren't equipped to I mean, to they handle. probably weren't. They weren't and that's I mean, why you equipped. hire people to to do that. They weren't equipped <laughs> to handle uh Alex and Marissa. Yeah, no they weren't. <laughs> but they tried. They tried. And and like as as well, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, there are a few exceptions. Obviously, there are people of color in the show that who show up for a couple episodes. Um, or there's Teresa. Teresa's the major exception. And at this point in the show, at this point in the show, she is portrayed as an abused woman with a baby out of wedlock who lies to Ryan. Yeah, and it's keeping her his perceived child from him. Not great. No. Not great. Um, but the way that they play her on surface level seems very like oh, okay, I can understand why she's doing that. Right. But when you really pull she's more it apart, sympathetic. Yeah. When you but when you really pull it apart and you and you look at the like what she's actually doing, if you like, we're like okay, but this is what she's actually doing. It's really shitty. Yeah. It's really shitty. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> so that's the biggest failing point of the show. I would like to take a moment to talk about Seth Cohen. We've already talked about Seth Cohen, but I have more to say about Seth Cohen. All right. Earlier, we mentioned fan fiction and the fact that Seth Ryan is one of the biggest, the biggest pairings in the fandom. Um, so at the risk of, of pissing some people off, I have some things to say. <laughs> I'm so ready. Many people read Seth as a queer character. or at What? Least, I did not know this. Let me tell you the essays I was reading. What? So many people read Seth as a queer character, or at least as a counterpoint to traditional masculinity, right? Ryan represents the traditional punch first, ask questions later. I'm so interested in this and how this is going to be. Ryan's the punch first, ask questions later version of masculinity, whereas wife beater, physically powerful. Seth is physically weaker. He's more sensitive. (laughs) 
This is me throwing my hands in the air like, is he, though? Um, He's more sensitive to his own feelings. Yeah. He reads comics and is more intellectual. He likes indie rock, et cetera, et cetera. So, okay, whatever. So he's a counterpoint to traditional masculinity. Okay, cool. I get that. I respect it. But let me just say, Seth Cohen is the embodiment of shitty straight geek dudes in the most perfect and horrible way. He is that. He is that. He, at one point, makes a child upset because he questions her comic knowledge. Well, I I just l- watched all the episodes with Reed and like their yeah. their like absolute like bafflement of like she's hot and she likes comics. Not only does she like comics, but she like can school us on comics. And Anna for that and matter. Anna, yeah. And it's just like it's just like you know like we all everybody in the nerd nerd area knows Seth. Yeah. Like they know they know Seth. Like yeah. We, we know like Seth would be the person who'd be like who I'd be like I love The Last Jedi just to piss him off. Yeah. That that is who that is. I can't believe George Lucas is also right. <laughs> um so truly a perfect show. Seth, so Seth, like a lot of people want to read him as this like opposition to traditional masculinity, but like in 2019, you know, he feels more like the shitty dude who calls himself a feminist and then se- asks why you won't send him pictures of your boobs, because that would be uh sex positive of you. That's how I feel about Seth Cohen. I love well, him as a I mean, character. Look at his but... reaction when he sees Marissa and Alex together, where he's like, "I need to like picture this. Give me a yep, second. Yep, like, yep. That's messed up. Yeah, that's... he's so messed up. Yeah, he's legit. He is like this shitty dude. I'm like, I like I said, I love him as a character. I think he's wonderful. But I think that we want to read him and the show. Like by the way that the show like. The show clearly wants us to think that Seth is like a super flawed person, right? Like, I'm not saying that the show wants uh, wants us to ignore his flaws. Rather, the way that he is constructed in the show wants us to still kind of feel better about him than we feel about like somebody like Luke or um, some other shitty dude. I don't know. No, nobody's coming to mind. But um, he still represents mass like traditional masculinity and acceptable masculinity it's just not the like hegemonic ideal of masculinity because he likes comics or whatever um seth is a like seth is on reddit like dabbling he looked at red pill subreddits once or twice or something like that like tell me that's not true i mean it is you know he's like they're crazy but like have you read this one thread yeah like it kind of made sense like not really like again love seth cohen but Come on. In 2019, Seth Cohen's out here like, well, you know, that guy's a Chad. That's Seth Cohen. He said that unironically once. Um, And I think it's worth interrogating where this idea comes from and like why people might be tempted to read Seth as queer. But uh, And this this is like separate from the idea of like shipping him with Ryan, which is totally fine. Do what you want. It doesn't bother me. Um, it's more this tendency that I was seeing to read Seth as a queer character and as a fundamental challenge to masculinity because I don't think that's true. So where does that come from? Seth is ostracized in his community, right? Because he is physically weaker. He doesn't play water polo. He um, reads comic books. Um, so he's he's not part of like the Newport ideal, right? He has these geeky interests. He's into comics. He's into movies. He's into Japanese cinema in particular. He's into indie rock. All these things that are kind of like outside the mainstream. So he kind of exists in this in the space outside of the mainstream. 
Uh, he's called queer within the narrative. Um, Luke calls him a queer, which is rude. They really loved that in the first, sure, first sure, half of the first season. They sure did. <laughs> um, so, like, that's that's shitty. Um, but that you know that furthers that idea that he is he's outside of the norm. Um, and then he's also being positioned as opposite to Ryan. And like, honestly, like I can totally see where that ship dynamic comes from. It's not my thing in particular, um, but I totally see. Like, personally, I just really love them as like adopted brothers i think it's so sweet and it makes me cry to think about um the way that they've changed each other's lives and it's lovely but like i totally see where that desire to ship them romantically comes from especially when you think of them as as opposites opposite views of masculinity well, if you think of of seth's reaction when ryan left as opposed to like yeah. literally having summer he had summer right there he had summer yeah. right there like he has been obsessing over i can 100 percent oh, yeah. see it yeah I can get behind it a little bit. Yeah. It ultimately it didn't like Seth and Summer are so endgame for me. Like I can't. Um, but like I totally get where the ship dynamic comes from and I think it's a totally like totally makes sense. Uh I but I struggle with these ideas. Um because not being traditionally masculine does not inherently equal queer. And to be honest, I think that's offensive. <laughs> It is. People are making that leap. Uh one essay I read and I, I didn't cite it because it was um it bothered me. Uh it cites this example of Lex Luthor in Smallville holding a baby as a marker of queerness. What? Because it's a man showing tenderness. Whoa, that's rude. Uh, and like, I'm reading this without context. So maybe if, if I'd seen that scene, I would feel differently. Yeah, but maybe. like, just from the way it's described, that's like a basic fucking human thing to do. Now, I don't like to hold babies, but that's not why <laughs> I'm queer. <laughs> um, a man displaying signs of tenderness is not inherently queer, as in meaning not heterosexual. Well, there, there's so many implications there. Right. It's wrong. Like saying, okay, saying tenderness. Are you saying that's more of a female thing? Are you saying exactly. being more female makes you queer? Makes you, yeah. The, the, there's, so, as they say, a lot to unpack there. Like, what is, like, so do gay people, do gay men just want to be women? Because that's a completely different thing. Yeah. That, like, <laughs> being tender isn't inherent to women. Mm-hmm. What is wrong with these people? So, it may be queer on a more figurative level, as in when we talk about queering something, like, as a, as a verb. Um, but I really think it's worth drawing a distinction between literal queerness, as in Seth is not straight, versus figurative queerness, as in Seth represents an alternate form of gender and or sexual being outside of cis and heteronormativity. Seth. It's so interesting because I can actually maybe see. I could not. Uh, uh, Seth to me is 100% straight, but I could probably see Ryan as bi. Absolutely. I agree. 100%. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, I can just totally see it. Seth is like, and I think this comes from the fact that we exist in this geeky space and we know so many Seths. Like, I guess that's true. Like, Seth is, Seth is a quintessential woke straight white dude like is he not he is he's the one that like like people are like oh i love seth you know you know you know he's just you know sometimes goes a little too far but he's just seth yeah from what we know of seth like textually like the evidence that we're given he is cis he is straight so even if he is challenging masculinity by not being a macho dude bro which i would still disagree with because he is a macho dude bro just in a different space uh that doesn't represent queerness so much as it does a healthy in a sense expansion of accessible ac acceptable rather acceptable masculinity so like a man who is sensitive who is caring who is in touch with his feelings who likes indie rock is not not a man nor is he not straight he's just a man with a broader sense of acceptable masculinity 
I'm super in favor of that. Like I'm super in in favor of broadening what is acceptably masculine because toxic masculinity is real. Um, And so the thing is, I would really, really, really like to separate gender expression from sexuality because they're two different ideas and especially to step away from the kind of thinking that suggests that a man who is sensitive or not physically strong is also gay because that suggests that masculinity and heterosexuality are intertwined. And I don't like that one bit. Yeah, you can think that Seth is gay and not, like, intertwine it with his weakness. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's saying a lot. Like, it is, it, here's the thing, like, when we're talking about this kind of thing, we're talking about, like, stereotypes and about um, the way that people are constructed, usually fictionally, or if not fictionally, then pseudo-fictionally, when you're talking about, like, reality shows or whatever. Um, the way that you kind of embody certain stereotypes because it, it works on TV or whatever, that kind of thing. A person who is genuinely, like, like Seth and is queer is a totally valid person. Like that's not what we're critiquing here. What we're critiquing is the idea that Seth by being an outsider is queer because that those are his, his queer markers. Yeah. And it's like, yes, there are plenty of queer, queer people who are just like Seth, but there's also times when like Seth makes like comments on Ryan's parents that like that could be maybe yeah. what we track. Yeah. Not his inability to lift something or right. his sensitiveness or his like, not wanting to fight. Yeah, like like that's just a broadening of a definition of masculinity that I super support, but that doesn't mean that he's queer. I think it doesn't help like it doesn't help that the show just continually calls him queer for these things. Right. So it's 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 I think it's really easy to make it's really lazy to make that jump because you're just following the narrative that the show is trying to give you. You're not looking past that and yeah. like you have the ability to do that in 2019 at least. Yeah. I mean, if you want Seth and and Ryan to kiss, then like go to town, honestly. Th- there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, some people think that there's something wrong with that because they're kind of brothers, but like it, it doesn't bother me. Um, my thing is there's lots of ways to be a man and not every sensitive dude is a good guy uh, and not nor is every sensitive dude gay. And the fact that we intertwine those three ideas really like frequently bothers me and the reading the readings that I was doing for this and and seeing how many people were talking about Seth as a queer character because of the way that he's written almost validates the bullying that he receives that he's called queer right like it almost that like oh well no he is queer because you know he doesn't like to fight and it's like well okay you're agreeing with Luke (laughs) but you do you I guess you're agreeing with Luke while not like like valid like saying like okay well your bullying is like okay but you're but you're also saying like the reason you're targeting him is correct yeah it's not true yeah and it's like again ship what you want there's no but you don't need to excuse that shit by finding textual evidence that Seth is secretly yeah, you queer can just be like I want Seth and Ryan to just fuck yeah and it's like okay it's not my thing but i understand why you would support you yeah i understand why you would want that so yeah i can totally understand it yeah it's just we don't need to find two hot people kissing is always good yeah like usually that's we need that on a shirt (laughs) because we say that a lot it's true and like the back of like you you ship you. You do you. you, do you. <laughs> ship what you want. You do you. Um, I have a quote I want to read, which is from the OC, A Critical Understanding, which is by Lori Bindig and Andrea M. Bergstrom. 
which reads, in fact, the only lasting male friendship is between Ryan and Seth. Ryan and Seth are so close that when Ryan returns to Chino at the end of the first season, Seth can no longer remain in Newport and sails off to Tahiti. Seth's departure is significant since, although Ryan will be gone, he does have Summer in his life, a girl he has pined for since grade school. Rather, Seth's privileging of his relationship with Ryan is made explicit by Summer, who notes, what we had wasn't as awesome as you and Ryan, otherwise you wouldn't have left. This feeling is certainly not one-sided since Ryan states that he feels like he abandoned Seth. So in season one, Summer is representative of this life that Seth wishes he had, right? Like he wishes to an extent that he fit in and he could have a girl like Summer. Um, That's like this vision for his life that he won't, he won't admit to it. Like he won't say like, I wish that I fit in. He will say, I wish that I had Summer. Um, Ryan, just by being a friend to Seth for the first time in his life, opens up whole new doors to Seth, including giving him the confidence to date Summer, even if he does leave like a fucking coward. Um, when he leaves, Seth regresses and he runs away to be an outsider forever. Well, and like it, it totally makes sense though, because like you, you think like why would why would he run? He got summer, which is what he wanted, but that's not really what that he wasn't wanted. what he wanted. He, he wanted, wanted to fit in, and Ryan gave him that space while summer was still summer. Yep, like clearly summer changed like in the show, like they've changed to her character just in general. Yeah, but like she's she even makes comments. She's like, I was pretty mean to you, wasn't I? Like mm-hmm. she's still there. She still did that. She's still pretty mean to him. I mean, he's mean back. But like, <laughs> oh Ryan, yeah, but like. <laughs> for him to run away because Ryan's gone makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. It's like, it's like the first, I remember that that Seth left in season one and I couldn't remember why. And we were getting to like five episodes remaining of season one. I'm like, why the fuck does Seth leave? I don't get it. And then you get there and you see that he left because Ryan left. And it's like, so good. Heartbreaking. Right. Like it was never, it was never really about summer. It was never about anything, but the fact that he wanted to feel like, he was a valid and loved person, not just by his parents. And by like, and by like this happening, I think was made it. So summer and Seth could be together because if if Seth if Seth held all of that within summer. That's a lot for summer to take on. And there's no way that their, their relationship barely worked at that point. Anyways, for her to hold all that would have been way too much. And I think summer would have been like, yo, I'm out. Like I can't, I can't handle that pressure. So it was really important that Ryan held that because Ryan can handle that. Yeah. Not only can he handle it, but I think he needed that. He needed to feel needed because he clearly didn't. He has a chronic rescue complex. Yeah. He, well, he never felt like he was needed by his family even though he was yeah like he knew he was needed but no one else like like really appreciated him for that yeah do you have anything else to say about seth i'm sure we'll talk more about him in the next episode (laughs) important Um, i tell the truth he was really hot he is still really hot and ready or not i'm not gonna lie he's just hot he's a disaster he's He's, a disaster and ready or not i think he's just a disaster is he married yeah, to uh, oh yeah, Leighton Easter. Duh. Duh. Um, let's talk about Marissa. So, full disclosure: when I was growing up watching the OC, I didn't like Marissa. I'm like, this bitch, so boring. Like, despite being a disaster human with like the most dramatic storylines, I was like, she's so boring. Um, now that I've rewatched it, Marissa still isn't my favorite character. Um. She gets a lot better. She does get a lot she better. She gets a personality. Yeah. But, you know, she's not my favorite. But as I was reading about this show and as Mary was reading about this show, um, and I'll get more into this when we talk about season three, but the way that people talk about Marissa is really telling. 
Um, so I'm going to take a, just kind of zoom out from Marissa for a bit. So when we're talking about female characters, it's important to acknowledge that it's good for characters to have flaws. Uh, women can be flawed, even stereotypically flawed, and still be complex. So some of the criticism I was reading of the OC was spot on in a broad sense. The show prioritizes the journeys of its male characters. Uh, its female characters are frequently based on damaging stereotypes about women. I mean, you have Marissa being this um, like straight up fairy tale princess. You have Summer's this vapid mean girl. Julie's a social climbing bitch. Um... Kirsten is also a bitch. <laughs> like all of those stereotypes. Like if you look at them just on a pure surface level, you can say that those things are true, right? Um, so a lot of the criticism I was reading was talking about those stereotypes. Uh, but when you get, you know, those criticisms lacked grit on a closer inspection. Marissa is a textbook damsel, right? But to malign her character as serving no other function does Marissa so much disservice that it turns the criticism around and makes it feel misogynistic to me. I think that's fair. It's so interesting. This is jumping ahead a little bit, but when we were when I was reading all this stuff, I was sending a bunch of stuff to Missy because I, I looked back at some gossip sites and how they were talking about it. And, but then I also, and there was a lot of misogynistic stuff like she's talking about, but also when I look up why did the OC get canceled, the number one reason, spoilers, that I read was people were upset Marissa died. And I think it's like, is it because they missed having that person to just dunk on? I wonder, right? Also, she's talked, Misha Barton has talked about more than like the show. Yeah. And like, so some of this criticism of, of Misha Barton and Marissa in particular comes from this L interview that she did. And remember, she was the youngest member of the cast at the time. She was the only one that was even close to the age that she was portraying, um, where she said that people would come up to her and, and talk about how the OC inspired them. And one of the examples she used was a returning veteran who had one leg or something like that. And, and she said, I think it's weird that people tell me they like my stupid show. Like, isn't there more important stuff to, wor- to worry about? And um, people really jumped on her for that, and and were like, and like I, I understand why. It, what she said was crass, right? Like it was it was crass, and it wasn't nice. Um, but at the same time, like she's young, she's the only one of the cast that was, like I said, even close to her age. It was, and and like people were feeling a little extra sensitive about that kind of thing because it was two thousand four, and that was three years after nine eleven. Um, well. And also, like, I would think if I were Mr. Barton, that's what people would want to hear because you probably are thinking, like, because oh, oh. she, I mean, she, she, all she was doing was a show. It, it means nothing. You know, it is just a vapid show. So she, I would imagine that she probably thought that's what people wanted to hear. Yeah. And, and like... That she was self-aware. Yeah, I'm not saying that that Misha Barton was absolutely right to say this, mm-hmm. but I am saying that the degree to which we really hated on her for this and for the crime of being a pretty blonde girl who maybe isn't super great at acting is like really intense. And it speaks more of misogyny to me than it does of any actual reflection of Marissa. So I say all this because despite Marissa being far from my favorite character, the way that people respond to her really makes me mad. And the other female characters, she's a damsel, but she's also super complex. Her actions don't just constantly bring her closer to danger. They also make sense when you consider her upbringing and her actions really mirror Ryan's. Like the fact that we're not criticizing Ryan for a lot of the same things is really telling, right? 
uh, women can be flawed and women can be can fall into stereotypes and still be interesting and complex characters. The men in the show are also stereotypes. Ryan is your typical brooding hero, got a dark past, trying to change his life, get on the right track, etc. Um, Seth is your typical put upon nerd. Like Sandy is your morally upright lawyer who's you know dragged into um into moral issues because that's what happens um but little of the criticism that i read called that out the 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 stereotypical male characters as emblematic of the show being regressive whereas the reverse was true for the female characters and of course like men like ryan and seth aren't marginalized in our society seth is jewish but i'm talking more about the straight white cis angle here um so it's natural to focus on the stereotypical women but i still think that when talking about a character like marissa it's important that we acknowledge that she can be interesting and complex and rounded while also embodying stereotypes. I think it's also important to under like to think about the context in which this show is happening in that it was the height of it girl yeah. disaster. So I mean, Paris Hilton Paris, shows up. Paris Hilton. And uh, it's great when she, she like it's, it's perfect. It's shallow, but it's that same idea of like Paris Hilton shows up and says, Don't tell anybody I'm studying my PhD or whatever. Yeah. But like we also have like Lindsay Lohan, like Britney Spears. But I don't know if she, when did Britney Spears have her? Anyways, Britney, it was later. Britney Spears is like really popular and she's starting to have like, oh, like we're at the height of this like teen girl or perceived teen girl meltdown. And Misha Barton is easily fitting that that stereotype. Not necessarily. Well, eventually Misha Barton does. But Marissa Cooper is fitting that stereotype and, and like, we love those stories like I we did that whole, love them we did that whole episode on like the sad girl aesthetic and like how yeah. how much pleasure we derive from watching women suffer yeah it's true and so marissa became this very captivating character and i think that people i mean misogyny right but also like people conflated the idea of like the the rich people in newport are bad true uh, Marissa suffering, true. With Marissa has no right to suffer because she's rich, not true. Yeah, not true. Um, Marissa, like Seth, is a product of growing up in Newport. Also, like Seth, there's a lot of parallels between Seth and Marissa, and I bet you didn't see that coming. <laughs> so, also like Seth, Marissa has one parent who isn't from Newport. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julie is not from Newport. Julie grew up poor. Uh, also like Seth. Uh, the person that she, the person that Marissa is, is a perfect emblem of her parents. That's true. On the one hand, she's sweet and caring. Jimmy, bless him. He's, he's an idiot. He's he's a big dumb idiot criminal. But the reason that he's a criminal is because he's trying to care for his family. But like even then, like he's like actually bad with money. Yeah. And like so is Marissa. Like yeah. Marissa actually has no idea how money works. Whereas right. Julie knows exactly yep. how much like if Jimmy actually had Julie help him I bet he would have been okay yep because Julie is actually really smart with money yeah so from from Jimmy she has this idea of being re- she's very sweet she's very caring she wants to help people on the other hand she feels completely out of place and is always hungry for some kind of satisfaction that she can't mm-hmm. get which is very Julie Cooper yep. uh, when she tries to feel fill that need that desire for like to satiate this hunger that she doesn't really understand she hurts hurts others and she hurts herself like she's the perfect uh, combination of her parents like the way that marissa behaves is not just like privileged you know rich girl has a bad time it's like 
the way that she behaves makes sense. Mm-hmm. She wants to help people like Trey, like Ryan, like Oliver. Uh, and then in later seasons, like Volchek, uh, like Jimmy or Johnny. Um, but in doing so, she destroys herself. She gets involved with drugs and alcohol. There's like, it never really talks about her having an eating disorder, but it like brings it up multiple times. Yeah. They- like it'll talk about her eating habits and, and that kind of thing. Like, oh no, I was just um, trying to lose weight for tennis season or whatever. Yeah. One well, and summer is like, you're looking real thin. And- yeah. Um, so also a, a product of its time. Yeah. Like, Girls were so thin, so thin. Because our pants were so low. It's true. We didn't have the Kardashians. We didn't have high-waisted jeans. We didn't have high... No, we had the jeans. They were low, and then they had the elastic thing that you pulled it down, so they got even lower. It was awful. It was an awful time, It was an awful time. It was an awful time. Um, So Marissa is a more complex character than just a damsel or just a, you know, privileged rich girl sad times she makes sense as a character when you when you really consider her beyond that surface level idea of she's poor she's rich and sad um so i have another quote i want to read which is from the oc a critical understanding which is by laurie bindig and andrea m bergstrom uh which reads from the first episode ryan is seen rescuing marissa who is passed out from drinking and abandoned by her friends outside her house after seeing marissa's friends drive off ryan comes over picks marissa up and carries her to the pool house. In the DVD commentary for the pilot, series creator Josh Schwartz explains, this was a dynamic that Ryan was going to find himself in throughout the series, sometimes literally carrying her in his arms. Executive producer Stephanie Savage describes the scene as a gentlemanly, almost fairy tale like moment of rescuing her and laying her down. Thus, it becomes explicit that part of the fairy tale embedded in the OC is rooted in Ryan's heroism and Marissa's helplessness. Got that good bridal carry. Got that good bridal carry. <laughs> uh, this is definitely true. And one of the biggest actually disappointments I have with the overall direction of the show, which I'll get into in season three. Uh, the desire to help because you help and the desire to help as a destructive thing are two of the big other big themes of this show right because you have a lot of characters who want to help you have sandy who wants to help you have ryan who wants to help you have marissa who wants to help and later on you have summer who wants to help and all of them in doing that maybe with the exception of sandy i think is probably the one who just seems to have the pure desire to help no that not even that's true uh sandy's does like and again this is going into season three but like all of these characters their desire to help undoes their relationships with the people around them. Like, I don't know that Ryan and Marissa could have ever worked because Marissa was just always something that needed saving by Ryan. Yeah. Um, when you have a relationship where the relationship is based on the idea that one person will like die without the other person, that's not like a super healthy, healthy relationship why, like, dynamic. Marissa and Alex were so good. They were, they were legit so they good were together. So good. And like, I wish Alex would have fought harder for that. I do that. too. Well, we'll get into that. What happened there? Um, so like, like that, that wording wasn't super eloquent, but this is a recurring theme of the show. You see it in Sandy and Ryan, of course, the desire to help and then the destruction that helping too much, um, can wreak on your life. Uh, but also Marissa, she's determined to save Oliver despite it being destructive, not only for her, but for her relationship with Ryan for her to do so. And of course that, you know, from the outside without knowing how bad Oliver is, that reads as, um, jealousy, right? It reads as Ryan is jealous of her relationship, her pure relationship with Oliver. Um, but from that's like one of the best things about Marissa is she just has these relationships with other men and like, you expect them to be like 
sexual or she wants to date them but she really doesn't she really she truly does she not. really just wants to help like yeah. she sees people who are struggling and she wants to help them and this happens time and time again not just with her but with with ryan and sandy as mm-hmm. well um and it ends it ends up leading her to destruction because her entire identity becomes about helping these people who yeah. probably don't really want help they want her presence but not so much her help uh like her presence is a present yeah kiss her ass yeah. uh yeah, and that's how she ends up being hurt and ending up conti- consistently in these situations where, like, I mean, she's she's clearly trying to fill a void, right? Like, she's trying to f- she's trying to help people because it makes her feel better, and the result is that she ends up trapped in like self destructive cycles, and she keeps being attracted to these men who need her to save them, and then she can never save them, and then she, you know, ultimately can't save them, and so she ends up feeling worse about herself, and it just happens and happens and happens, and especially the last time that it happens. Um, she even does this with her dad. Mm-hmm. Season three is where it really gets bad because the person that she tries to help straight up blames her for his own inability to like get over her and get over what has happened to him. And that leads her down her ultimate self-destructive path. Um, as a character, Marissa's biz- biggest weakness, in my opinion, is how her desire to help always does end up entangled in romance. So, Oliver, Trey, and characters that come later, and even Ryan, um, end up romantically involved with her in some way. Not, not on her end, though. Not on her it's end. Just it's so interesting. It's always on their end. But um, that means that there's always an element of jealousy going on with Ryan. Less so in season three. There was there's a lot less jealousy. It could have there. been a really good commentary on how like women sometimes just want to be friends and like men misunderstand. I feel that. like season three actually gets that pretty really? well. Yeah. Um one of the one of the bright points of season three is is th- that's not a bright point of season three, but like the way that that relationship plays out, mm-hmm. I think is actually f- fairly well done. Uh, I would have loved to see Marissa use her desire to help people based on her own experiences, like her experience with um, addiction or with overdosing or eating disorders or abuse or any of those things. But instead, she's largely a vessel into which Ryan dumps help so that he can learn a lesson about how you can't save somebody who doesn't want to be saved. So she becomes more of a lesson for Ryan than anything else. And that's ultimately why I am disappointed with her as a character. Um, Because there's, there's an event in season three that I won't talk about yet, but it was such a perfect opportunity to take Marissa in a different direction and it didn't take it. And it's one of the biggest frustrations I have with season three. Do you have anything else to say about her, that, that section? Cause now we're going to the section about bisexuality. No. Okay. So, Marissa in season two ends up dating Alex, who is played by Olivia Wilde. Um, and Marissa or Alex runs the bait shop, which is the new cool music club in town um, where you can. I think it's in season three. They make the joke of where you can always hear your friends talk and you can always you're always front row to see the band. Um, so Mar- Marissa and Alex start dating. And this is very much shown as, in part as a way to get back at Julie. Uh, because I think it's shortly after Ju- uh, Marissa finds out that Julie was dating Luke. Yeah. You've watched it more recently than I have. I think this is more of a response to him dating. Yeah, no, because it, it's Luke and Caleb, I think, all, okay. all in one. Um, I fully expected this this romance between Alex and Marissa to suck on rewatch. Like, I was I was fully anticipating that I wouldn't like it. Um. I don't think it sucks, actually. I don't think it sucks either. So I will say, there's a, there's a few caveats here. Um, to my knowledge, 
Josh Schwartz is a straight man. So I'm not going to be like, no, obviously Marissa really is bisexual because I said so. And it definitely wasn't a ratings ploy, especially when he straight up said in the DVD commentary uh, for Rainy Day Women, which is the episode where they keep kissing. Uh, I think the Alex Marissa storyline truthfully was built so Seth could say you broke up with me for Marissa. As much as I'd like to say we were advancing the perception of bisexual relationships in the 21st century. So like Josh Schwartz is not exactly candid about the fact that there was an ulterior motive there besides being like here's a cool bisexual relationship for cool bisexual teens to look up to. But I think that's where the writers of the show have helped that though because i think that they do address those things in their relation alex addresses also, them look at how josh schwartz calls it a bisexual fucking relationship <laughs> look at that look at that shit for tw- 2000 and what five when yeah. you said that that's pretty intense like that's crazy if you look at the articles talking about that they don't even say oh, that oh no okay so it's extremely fucking telling that everybody kept calling marissa either straight or saying that she was dabbling in quote-unquote lesbianism there is a word for somebody who's attracted to people of the same and different genders there are in fact multiple words for that uh and it's not like these words weren't talked thrown around. Like, right? Like, clearly. I remember hearing pan for the first time in, like, like being, like, I think I was a, a, a sophomore. I think it was a sophomore. Yeah. So, like, pan was being thrown around. Yeah. If you know who Death Cab is, you probably know, you probably know <laughs> what by and, and pan. Yeah. So... Like I said, if I'm 100% honest, there was some sexism in the way that people responded to Marissa as a character. And the way that people talk about her relationship with Alex is emblematic of that, especially when you consider that it was always about Marissa's quote unquote dabbling in lesbianism and not Alex, who's also fucking bisexual. But we still won't acknowledge it. Like we still won't talk about Alex as a bisexual character fucking angers me so this is a quote from josh schwartz on gossip girl and avoiding the mistakes of the oc by jada yuan where the interviewer says i thought marissa's lesbianism was a bit annoying and josh schwartz responds no that i do not regret the only thing i'm bummed about about that is that they made us write olivia wilde off of the show much much sooner than we had planned i wanted her to stick around i love a willie olivia wilde i think she's terrific i wanted to keep that character on but they told us people are worried about this episode and this storyline and blah 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 so we had to write her out way sooner than we expected so it just became much more rushed but i like the whole idea i thought it was intriguing beyond the obvious factor the other interesting thing is that the first time they kissed it was actually very romantic and surprising and kind of touching kiss and they made us cut like three quarters of it out so what you got was like this peck basically and then you saw the commercials for it like don't miss the last five seconds for the hottest kiss ever and you're like we're dead not only did we lose all credibility with the way we were selling it but what we were told to do was not what we were selling it, that that whole quote is so telling because he, he completely understands the flaws of what happened yep and how he failed yep it's very interesting. Yeah. And this this tells me that, I, like, like, like I mentioned earlier, like, it clearly wasn't just about, like, providing a great bisexual relationship for people to look at or whatever. Like, there were ulterior motives there. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean the relationship itself can't be fulfilling, right? Like, and that's the thing is, is people were unwilling to believe that. And even within the show, there were a lot of remarks about how... It's, I think especially from Julie that she was just doing it to piss Julie off, which like she probably was to an extent. There's a lot of things she could have done though to piss Julie off. Yeah. And I don't doubt that Alex and Marissa were genuinely passionate about one another. I super think that they were because ultimately what made Marissa like 
doubt things because she at first doubted like okay i like i'm being surrounded by people who are different than me but she kind of got over it but what really drove her was the having to care for herself Mm -hmm. and like not having money and like having to learn that that's ultimately like having to be an adult what made her run if alex was rich they would have lasted longer yeah and that has a lot more to do with marissa's privilege than it does her sexuality exactly and and like yes marissa never gets with another woman throughout the show and it's only briefly touched on as like marissa remember when marissa dated a girl haha um which is not great like i'm not out here saying that that was that that means it's a really good portrayal i'm just saying that like it's first of all marissa can be a bisexual character even if you don't fucking like her I didn't like her the first time I watched the show. I thought she was super boring. And I still like this. This still resonated with me in part because I was a young bisexual teen who wasn't out. So, you know, of course, it's going to fucking resonate with me. I got to see two hot people kissing. Yeah. I mean, Marissa doesn't really do it for me. Olivia Wilde, maybe. But oh, my God. Bob's obsessed with her because Olivia Wilde or Marissa. uh, Both, honestly, (laughs) but especially Olivia Wilde because she was in Tron. Oh. So Ed, when I, the whole time I was watching that he's like oh Olivia Wilde's my girl and I was like <laughs> I hate you um, she's Marissa's girl <laughs> uh, I have another quote I want to read which is from Curious Guy the OC by Bill Simmons um, this is from Josh Schwartz in this interview as for Olivia Wilde dude I'm right there with you whose idea do you think it was to have her in a relationship with Marissa but the network was very nervous it was an extremely conservative time in our country thank Janet Jackson for that and aside from me That was not fucking Janet Jackson's fault. So edge off. Uh, And everyone was freaking out. We had a whole episode where every kiss between them was cut out just so I could get in one kiss in the Rainy Day Women episode. I was literally on the phone with broadcast standards and practices bartering for kisses. It was a battle. And the powers that be are part of a big corporation. And I was and we're going in front of Congress at that time. Every network was. So I understand they are all good people who are under a lot of pressure. But they wanted that story wrapped up as fast as humanly possible. And Alex moving on out of the OC. But Olivia is a superstar. She was great in the part. I would have her back on the show in a heartbeat. And she's going to have a huge career i can totally agree he was right but if you want alex back america you're gonna have to vote bush out of office <laughs> that's a legit quote from this interview um that's amazing yeah uh so the thing is here like i think this is it's a mixed bag right like on the one hand was it a ratings ploy during sweeps week maybe i'm not going to discount that possibility i definitely think it was like to kill birds with one stone. Exactly. I think that there were multiple things here. And I think that they maybe accidentally created a sympathetic portrayal of a relationship between two women, uh, one of whom was struggling with her sexuality and the other one was not. Um, but to... Uh, everybody out here saying it was annoying or that like it didn't make any sense for Marissa. Like, it totally does to me. It totally makes sense for Marissa to do this. And it totally makes sense that Marissa, like, it doesn't need to make sense that somebody is bisexual. Like, people are just bisexual or not bisexual. It's not, like, caused by being a privileged rich girl or whatever. There are all kinds of bisexual people. <laughs> but, like, Marissa's journey throughout this relationship, short-lived as it was, makes total sense. Exactly as Mary was saying about, like, learning to be an adult and seeing how Alex lives in comparison to how she lives. And that mm-hmm. ultimately being kind of the thing that... Her privilege was her downfall. Yeah. And then not her sexuality. Yeah. And then ultimately the reason they break up is, you know, in part an extremely rushed storyline in which Alex no longer feels like doesn't feel like she belongs in Marissa's world. Well, and like it also like, yes, it could be a ploy to get people to watch, but also clearly it wasn't enough to let them keep going. They had to stop it. So like, I feel like if it was more of a ploy, it would have been 
one episode. Yeah, this because is a, that's what they wanted. So this is a really good. This is a quote from that storytelling and song es, uh, essay, which says, "In the rainy day, women, the same short burst of Louis the Fourteenth's God killed the Queen breaks into the soundscape each time Marissa and her new, her new girlfriend Alex, played by Olivia Wilde, energetically kiss." The repetition of the song fragment signals the action as fun and exciting, a rebellious sexual experiment for Marissa. And whilst it never develops into the full track, the theme does pay off in a comic moment at this episode's close. The track's tapping drum and sharp rock guitar first briefly break into the soundscape to punctuate the girls sneaking a kiss at breakfast behind Marissa's mother's back. The ugh cry of the vocal acts as a comic stinger to the music's abrupt cut, almost a needle scratch, as they part when she turns around. The sharp, raucous rock track acts as a cheeky, reflexive commentary, coding the lesbian action as upbeat and sexy, not a meaningful exploration, but a short-term ratings-grabbing stunt. Despite what I said about it not being purely a ratings stunt, I do think there's some truth to this, right? Their relationship is brief. It's not meant to be super deep or meaningful. It clearly doesn't leave a lasting impact on Marissa. Uh, it's not really explored in depth. It probably didn't hurt ratings, even if it wasn't meant to grab them. Like the use of the music in the show, it's short-lived and fun. And I like that about it, actually. But it wasn't meant to be, clearly. It was, yeah. meant, to say, it was meant to be longer and meant to be more in yep. depth. So it, it, it's hard to say either way, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. Um, I, like I said, I think it's to kill two birds with one stone. We're yeah. Gonna, we're, here's a ratings grab, but also here's here's our opportunity to talk about something. Right. And like, I don't, I want to make it clear. The show is not particularly overly sympathetic toward queer characters. We had what we were talking about earlier with regard to Seth. Luke's dad is there, I guess. And Luke's dad continues to be the butt of the joke all the way through season four. Thanks for that, Caitlin. Um, though I will say that the initial treatment of Luke's dad and ultimately making him a joke is poorly done. There is still some compassion in his treatment. So this is another quote from the OC Critical Understanding. Uh, the focus does finally shift. And it's it's talking primarily about the fact that a lot of times in shows like the OC, a character being gay, ultimately, the story is not about the character coming to terms with their own identity, but rather... Um, how the heterosexual people in the gay character's life respond to them coming out. Uh, so this is this is about that. The focus does finally shift from Luke to Carson when Carson arrives at the Cohen's house in search of Luke. Carson explained, I've embarrassed my family enough. I think the best thing I could do right now is to just disappear. However, Sandy challenged the statement by recognizing Carson's bravery for coming out and being honest with himself as well as those who are important to him. Luke was then willing to return home with his father after overhearing his talk with Sandy. Twelve episodes later, it became clear that the strain in their relationship was repaired when Luke decided to move to Portland with his father after his parents' divorce became final. In the series of events, it became evident that Carson only seemed to accept himself after speaking with the Coens, and Luke only seemed to accept his father after overhearing their conversation. Thus, heterosexual acceptance and intervention were key to resolving the conflict between the estranged father and son. So I think, you know, on the one hand, the sh it is very about the straight people in Carson's life, right? Like it's, it's very much about how the heterosexual people are responding to him at the same time there, that moment with Sandy is really fucking good. It's true. It is because it would be easy to point to point at all of Carson's flaws and say, you're cheating on your wife. You lied to your family, like all of this kind of stuff. And like, those things are true. Right. But at the same time, like there is bravery in coming out and it makes me so happy that the show recognizes that yeah. even though the show is deeply flawed, especially in its portrayal of queer people, like the fact that they took that moment to not point the finger at um, at Carson and say you're bad, not because you're gay, but because you're bad. I have one. I have exactly one thing to say about Anna. Oh, Anna. Anna was too good for the show. She had it's to leave. True. She had to leave. She, she had to leave good. because if Seth wasn't awful, Seth would just be Anna. So she had to go. She could not Summer survive. Summer should have dated Anna. Yeah, I'm here for it. Uh, yeah, Anna could not survive in Newport. 
So she had to go. She's too good for this world. She had to leave before she was corrupted. Yep. And it was a good choice because she was legit too perfect. She, Anna is Captain Marvel. Uh, Captain Marvel is to Endgame as Anna is to POC. <laughs> she was too powerful. She's too powerful. And they had to write her out. Yeah. Um, that's literally all I had to say about Anna. I really like Anna as a character. Um, sometimes she's a bit too much. But that's I okay. I love her friendship with Summer, though. It's so good. It's so good. I, and yeah. I'm sorry. I feel I'm so sorry that Seth ruins it. I know. He ruins everything. She comes back, right? She does. Yeah. Briefly in season three. Yeah. Season yeah. three. Uh, let's talk about thought that Seth was losing his legs. <laughs> so wild. <laughs> um, let's talk about Kirsten. I love Kirsten. So Kirsten is one of the least sympathetic characters in the beginning of the show. She rejects okay. Ryan. She is absolutely fucking foolish with Julie, with Jimmy. Just foolish. Uh, she doesn't trust Sandy when we, like, our hearts are there for Sandy, right? And so Kirsten just... And, and she's the only... Like, Sandy is clearly set up as, like, having very progressive liberal values. He t- When he talks about later on, when he talks about going to Berkeley, I think this might be season... With Carson? Is that season two or season three? Two? Is it two? With Carson and like Carson used to run like a socialist magazine yeah, at Berkeley and um, Sandy was very into it and he like makes a joke about how he married his like upper class conservative wife and that kind of thing. Uh, so Kirsten is set up as as being the least sympathetic person in Newport, I would say. But as a show, well, Julie's pretty un- unsympathetic. Julie's pretty unsympathetic. Actually, but- you know, the most unsympathetic is their friend. Their their not friend who's like always there is like the the bad person. Um, oh, I don't remember. I don't know what her. She doesn't have a name, <laughs> but she's she's just like the the emblematic noopsie. Yes, yes, they're yeah. the most and like the ones like you'll never get like broke everything about um luke's dad oh yeah lady she's the most unsympathetic yeah that's true but like of the major the major cast i feel like even julie to an extent is sympathetic because like jimmy's lying to her yeah and she's pulled herself out of a bad situation she's smart she's like she sucks i love julie so much she's like legit one of my favorite characters but um Kirsten initially is not at all sympathetic, especially because of the way she treats Ryan. When we know Ryan is a good boy and he's our son, and, and we're right, and we're right, and and Kirsten is like, I don't want that criminal in my house. Like, paints a very bad picture of Kirsten. But as the show, father, <laughs> as the show goes on, you really come to feel for her. She is not thriving in Newport, despite everything, despite how it looks. She's not thriving there. She is barely holding it together. Uh, which you really see throughout season two, she when her father dies and she feels like Sandy isn't really there for her, everything falls apart. And and up until that point, she's been a functioning alcoholic. This is another. This is another. Well, I don't know. If she's super functioning. She definitely got in a car crash because she was drunk. Oh, that's true. Uh, but they managed to keep that quiet for the most part. Like most people weren't out there. Like Kirsten. It was more like, oh, Kirsten. even Julie said something. Julie was like, it's really early in the morning. Yeah. And like, what did you put in this? Julie said that. Yeah. This is so this is another point where I really felt like the criticism of the show was really misogynistic because there was a lot of people who talked about Kirsten and especially her alcoholism as being forced or as being 
um, coming out of nowhere. Oh, it's so wrong. It's so wrong. And like so that wrong. interview, that interview that I quoted earlier, the one with uh, Curious Guy, the OC, he brought that up. He's like, I just really didn't understand where her alcoholism came from. And Josh Schwartz was like, go back and rewatch because it was there from the beginning. It's there from the very beginning. Um, so when these things happen, especially with, I mean, her, her father's death is a big deal, right? Like that's a big deal. And that's it's at his funeral where she first gets really drunk in public and yells at Sandy, but she wouldn't have been yelling at Sandy if she hadn't felt abandoned by Sandy. Well, So she, I literally just watched all these episodes a couple days ago. She said like, she starts heavily drinking because she, she said after she lost, what's his name? Carson. She's like, I felt so alone and he made me feel less alone. And she felt alone because of Sandy and Sandy's choices. Yeah. And it's just like, of course like it makes sense like she felt alone and she was lonely her her child left her and he's still like not really there for her yeah and um she finds out her father's been lying to her her whole life and she Mm -hmm. has this sister and then sandy is like reconnecting with like a loved person like somebody like his first love that is absolutely the complete opposite like her like every way it's rachel Rachel, or rebecca i can't remember rebecca it's rebecca and she's so much in line with sandy like ideal ideologically straight up tells kirsten yeah i love your i i'm in love with your husband yeah and i don't know why that needed to be information that was volunteered but whatever i think because she was trying to break them up yeah she's straight oh she's she 100 was because when they got trapped in the in the hotel room and she's like what like she essentially said what happened and there in was vegas only stays. one bed yeah what happens in vegas stays in vegas like yeah. they weren't in vegas but she like legit even after having those conversations with kirsten still went forward with trying to seduce sandy yeah and she's a bad person well also being like a, a good person yeah, in exactly. terms of her actions. Yeah. It's another, it's an area where the show did morality but in a really interesting she, way. Like you, you find out she actually ran away. She didn't do anything. Yeah. Like she's, she's hiding because she's doesn't want to get somebody in trouble. Who's created a life, but she's completely willing to break down Sandy's life for yeah. her own gains. Yeah. Um, so all of that happens and then Caleb dies and then Kirsten kind of goes into this like depressive spiral where her alcoholism becomes less of a like functioning thing. Let me tell you, she gets it, she gets it together pretty quickly though. Yeah, she does. <laughs> it's like, wow. And, um, more of like a debilitating issue. One of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the entire series, I can say now that I'm almost done with it, is the intervention scene where... I cried so hard. Like Seth is like kind of in denial about it. He's like, "What? Mom just likes to have a well, drink." I mean, or- to be fair, like everybody in Newport like to like to drink. Yeah. And, like, um, I I would make the jump that this is a a cultural thing that still exists in places like this. Yeah. Like, I know people who live in places like this, and let me tell you, it is like that. So I can understand why Seth is like everybody drink. Like what? Do you, like so she takes a couple of treats, so she gets a little drunk, but like. It's not normal. And it's also really hard when your parent is in that position to admit that your parent maybe like has out al- like has alcoholism. Like that's a really hard thing to deal with, especially when you're raised like Seth to believe that your family is the exception in the city and they are not uh, morally bankrupt like everybody well, else and is. like so much of, of Seth's joy comes from his mother. Yeah. And so to find out that his joy that's coming from his mother is she's she's not. A joyful person and she's covering it up with alcohol has to be just absolutely yeah 
like not only like hard for him to see about his mother, but hard for him to see him himself. Yeah. And and that scene is just really it's really touching for a variety of reasons. One being the way that, you know, everybody comes out to to support Kirsten and say, like, we want you to get help. But one of the strongest ones is Ryan who tells her I've already lost one mother to alcoholism and I can't lose another. Oh God. It was, it, it was kills so me. Good. It fucking kills me. The parallels to Ryan's own mother are one of the places like with Kirsten are one of the places where the show is the strongest. In my opinion, instead of suggesting that alcoholism is a plight of the lower class, it treats it as a serious issue with a myriad of causes, which removes some of the insinuation that poverty causes moral failings like alcohol. Like, and I say moral failings in, in big old quotes. This is like alcoholism is not a moral failing. Um, but a lot of times it's portrayed that way. Right. So it, when when you see Kirsten struggle with alcoholism, it removes some of the insinuation that poverty causes, quote unquote, moral failings like alcoholism. It's not perfectly executed or anything like that. But that distinction really makes a difference in how we read both Kirsten and Ryan's mother. By extension, Ryan's mother gets a bit more sympathy. And later on in the show, we extend her a little more sympathy because of what we see Kirsten go through. We see Kirsten experiencing alcoholism as an addiction, not as a moral issue, not as a Band-Aid, not even it doesn't even feel like we we talked about the the kiss, the relationship between Marissa and um and Alex as a as a readings ploy, but the alcoholism doesn't feel like that at all. It feels so genuine and it's so heartbreaking to see somebody like not to see anybody, but but to see the way that it impacts Kirsten and then the way that it impacts everybody around her. It's also really impressive in how like her alcoholism takes place in the series of like a couple short a couple episodes. Like I think it's like four episodes maybe yeah. total. And like it's impressive that they were able to get all of that through in four episodes. Like that's really impressive. Yeah. If you know that it's coming, you you see it yeah very early on it's like watching Korosami yeah like like it's it's the groundwork is laid you know but in the same way that we ignore alcoholism or any form of addiction like if somebody otherwise has their life together we can look the other way I mean how many people like there's so many times when Kirsten is like I need a drink how many times do we see other people do that we really don't because that's not necessarily a normal reaction all the time right I said all really loud. Um, <laughs> it's not that reaction all the time. Like Kirsten's rea- like her first reaction is, is always I need a drink. Yeah. And um, and nobody has anything to say about it because they too want drinks. Yeah. So, you know, but not everybody does that all the time. Exactly. Um, Kirsten just as a character makes it really clear how toxic the environment of Newport is. All of these characters eventually get through. Well, not all of them. Most of the characters eventually get through it because they care for one another, right? Like Kirsten is able to get through. She's able to go to rehab. She's able to make that really hard choice of acknowledging that she has a problem because her family comes together, including Ryan and says, we can't lose you. Like we can't lose you. You see that too when she's gone. Like they really need her. They really need Kirsten. <laughs> Although they're like the house is a mess, and like your house looks fine actually. Yeah. Um. You see what happens when when she's removed from the equation and everything falls apart. And she in that moment, despite the fact, because up until that point she's been feeling like she's not needed. Summer or Seth has Summer now. Ryan, I don't know, has Marissa or whatever. Teresa, whoever he's seeing at the moment. Um. Sandy is doing business and like. Rebecca is a problem. Rachel's a problem. Whatever the hell her name is. Um, 
so she feels like she's not necessary in that time. But in that intervention, when she finally makes the decision to go to rehab, she sees how much her family cares for her. They make it clear, you matter to us. And that's why she's ultimately able to go to rehab. You even see this with Summer. Mm-hmm. With like Summer like trying to give her food because she recognizes her stepmom. And yeah. like she does like we never see her make that jump with her stepmom, but she does make it with Kirsten because Kirsten, even though they ne- don't necessarily have like a lot of one on one time, means something to to Summer. Yeah. It's a good storyline, in my opinion. Another big like feature of the show that Mary and I were talking about before we recorded was how strong Sandy and Kirsten's relationship is. It's like so good. I love their relationship so much. Like they both are such flawed characters. They go through so much together and they always come back to one another. The show really makes a point of trying to rip them apart and showing yeah. that that even through adversity, like a, a loving relationship can work. And I think it's really it was really important in that time because we grew up in a time where um, divorce was rampant. Like, yeah. So seeing a, a couple that can go through hard times and still stay together and like I think un- unreasonable hard times. Yeah. <laughs> and like consistently having like sexual temptation. Yeah. And showing that you can have those temptations and still um, come out the other side. Like, okay. I think that was really important for our generation to see because I don't think everybody was seeing that in their own families. Yeah. And like it really makes clear this idea that Newport in particular, tries to destroy every good thing, like in every sense. Yeah. Just the 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 proximity of Newport tries to destroy this relationship between two people who care very deeply about like each other. Like you even see, like when there, when right before um, Kirsten has her like really big meltdown as an alcoholic, she's talking to to Julie and she's like, "Oh, Sandy and I are not doing well." And Julie like was like, "No, absolutely not. You guys cannot break up. You guys are the only thing holding any type of like hope for anybody together. Is if you guys break up, then what what hope is there for love?" And like truly, I feel that yeah, way. it's like, true. That is Julie speaking my words. Yeah, it's their relationship is just so it feels so human and so well done, and it. Like it's it's just so good. I love them together so much. Yeah, and I and it just really like it only shows even more. Like I come out the other side of these two seasons just thinking Kirsten is just one of the strongest people I've ever seen mm-hmm. on TV. Like, and I say that as she she went to rehab, and that is a brave and strong move because especially in Newport, be, yeah, especially in, and she's even says that she's like everybody knows going away what that means, and like she her dad like. She, it would have been very easy for her and like understandably for her to just detox at home or to not make that choice and to just keep moving on or to get a divorce as Julie does so easily. And she doesn't, she's the strongest. She's so strong. And I think that it's important for her to be shown that way, not just for the viewers, but for like her children and for her extended children. Really? Yeah. Like, it's important for Marissa to see a mother figure who can last her. It's important for Summer to see that. Like, and when that starts and to And for fall, Ryan. Yeah, and for Ryan. And for Seth to know that his mother is still trying, even in really tough situations. And that she's flawed, and because she's he doesn't flawed. see her that way. Yeah, and she's flawed in the ways that he is flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he can easily fall, be susceptible to. Yeah. And, and so, I, I just... I mean... <laughs> stupid as it oh is my God. season three with with seth yeah, i think he'd learn something 
But so I just I I thought rewatching it that was one of the things that was most memorable for me was their relationship and how the show really and Newport really tried to rip them apart and they just couldn't do it and that shows the strength of not just their relationship but the individuals in this relationship yeah and how important that care is for one another yeah they say which is they save each other and their honesty like that's something that a lot of the other couple like julie and jimmy despite the fact that like they keep coming back together they come back together multiple times throughout the show Mm -hmm. they can never make it work they're never honest with one another yeah like they just never are there there's always something that they're hiding from each other yeah um so yeah kirsten's a good character yeah so that's gonna do it for this episode of the of the OC, <laughs> the odd cast. That's what, the Odyssey. The odd. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, think about that all day. Oh man. Who is Odysseus? Seth. I was gonna say it's not Ryan. No, it's not Ryan. It's Seth. Um. Anyway, that's gonna do it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com where we have links to all of our social media, uh, and we also have a link to our Patreon where for a donation every month you can get a reward like a shout out on the show or a postcard in the mail or you can make us do an episode on dawson's creek um oh my god i've never seen dawson's I've never creek seen dawson's creek um so that's the thing that you or could one do tree hill except yeah for episodes with fallout boy yep i did in fact see i think i only saw the one episode with fallout boy but he pete once was in it for a bit if i remember correctly um so yeah uh patreon helps us keep growing the show and eventually getting a new microphone and a new microphone stand so we don't have to use a screwdriver every time we record um i'll let you imagine how we use the screwdriver (laughs) um so next time we'll be doing uh what we've been up to um so that'll tell you everything we've been up to as you might have guessed uh then we'll be doing the oc seasons four Season, nope, season three and season four, uh, where we'll talk more about some of the things that we raised in this episode. And then we're also going to talk a lot about Marissa. I hope you're ready. Uh, and my feelings, I'm now Misha Barton Stan. Can we watch in the, the Hills revival? I'm tempted, honestly. It's really just because she, it seems like she became famous and mean. And I like that. Yeah, well, she had a complete she had a complete public breakdown. She like overdosed and oh, I didn't know she that. went to rehab. Oh, mm-hmm. she she in in a in a effort to stray away from Marissa, she literally became Marissa. Mm. I like that she became famous and mean. I support her. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I support I support it. Um, yeah, we're gonna talk a lot a lot about Marissa in the next episode because of what happens in season three. Uh, we're gonna take a brief break because we're going on vacation. Um, to go see Ludo. <laughs> so we're going to St. Louis to go see Ludo. Um, if any of you are going there, let us know. <laughs> Hang. Yeah, we don't. We've never been to St. Louis. We don't know what we're doing. No idea what we're doing. Um, so there will be a- the furthest I've ever been. The first time I'm out of a time zone. Yep. Um, so that will be at the end of the month. So there will be no episode. Um, I don't know how it works because now I'm working in the future. Uh, and then <laughs> just to prepare. Yeah. So. After that, we will be doing an episode on Steven Universe. But Melissa, you're saying well, you did an episode on Steven Universe 100 years ago, and you were you would be right. Um, however, I went back and listened to that episode, and I was like, this is not very good. Uh, so we're gonna do it again, <laughs> and we're gonna cover. <laughs> we're gonna. It co- wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It's just like we've progressed. I would have turned it off. I'd been like, this is not very deep and it's disorganized. And so I would have turned it off. It was an early episode. Yeah, it was like episode 19, I want to say. Yeah, it was an early episode. Um, 
So we're going to do Steven Universe again and we're going to talk about the new movie and all of that kind of stuff. We'll and get deeper. We'll get deeper. It'll be organized. We won't be disasters. Um, and I'm really excited to to revisit the show because it, I have I dropped off of it um, around uh, the song. I like that it's based off a song. Yeah. It's the one with like Yellow Diamond and Blue Diamond. I don't know. That was where I stopped watching it. And it wasn't just be- it wasn't because it got bad. I just stopped for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, we'll be talking about Steven Universe. I'm really excited to go back into the show. And I'm really excited to just kind of revisit maybe the feelings that we had about it three, four years ago and see see where we're at now. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So that's it. All right. Did you do the where you can find it? Yeah. You did? Yeah. Wow, how did I just completely... Just zoned out. All right, well, catch you on the flip side. Bitch. Bitch. You know what I like about the flip side? Nothing. Nothing.